Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, I am going to explore the history of the early black pioneers in Battle Creek, Michigan, dating back to the pre-Civil War era. And I'll be referencing an article written by historian Charles E. Barnes in 1908. So come along and join me, and let's take a look back at the early history of the black citizens in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, the article that I'm going to be reading from today was entitled, Escaped Slaves Found a Safe Haven in Battle Creek Before the War. And it was written by historian Charles E. Barnes and published on April 19, 1908, in a newspaper called the Sunday Journal Record. Now, who was Charles Barnes? Well, he grew up as a newspaper man in the Battle Creek area. He was born in 1848, and he died in 1911. And the last years before he passed away, he spent his time writing historical accounts from Battle Creek's history and publishing them in the local newspapers. And he wrote several articles about black history and the Underground Railroad, as well as other stories about early pioneer history that were published in the local papers during that time. And it wasn't just a Sunday Journal record. I'm still in the process of trying to locate some of the other stories that he published during that time period. And I want to bring those to this podcast as well. But he would have been a teenager during the period that he's going to be talking about in this story. And he's talking about the early pioneer settlers that were blacks that came to Battle Creek. Most of them were escaped slaves. And he's going to tell the story unabashedly as it was told back in the day. So in this episode, I'm going to be using terms like colored, which is... Not so much in use today, but it was historically how black people were referred to in the past. And so I'll be reading from the reference on that. There's also some explicit language, which I'm not going to include in here. There's only one mention of that. But the history is what it is. And it may be upsetting to some people, but it is a historical account of the life of the early black settlers in the Battle Creek community and how they existed and operated and functioned and how they built a life for themselves and built their own community here in Battle Creek and also how they were looked at by some other parts of the state at that time period. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. So Charles E. Barnes begins, an interesting page in the history of Battle Creek is that of the pioneer colony of fugitive slaves whose presence here in goodly numbers in antebellum days, contributed much to the early life of this community. Our pioneer colored citizens were fugitive slaves who came here on the Underground Railway and settled permanently in Battle Creek. The fact that they were shrewd enough to plan and execute an escape from bondage is evidence that they were above the average intelligence of slaves. Brought up on plantations to labor, work, had become a habit with them. Hence, they were willing to work and did work. They were useful and industrious citizens and were respected in those days by all white people. To a man, they were loyal Republicans. And after they were given the franchise, helped to roll up the big majorities on that ticket. 
by giving the franchise, he's referring to being given the opportunity to vote post-Civil War. In the early days, there were no foreigners in Battle Creek, with the exception of a small number of Irishmen and a few Germans. Other nationalities were not represented. On the other hand, the colony of colored people were so large that Battle Creek became noted for its African population and was frequently referred by the Democrats of other towns as the N-word nest. Many are the stories told about Battle Creek and their colored population. It is claimed that in early days, whenever a colored man boarded a Michigan Central train, the only train then running to this city, that the conductor never asked the black passenger where he was going. He took out from the money tendered the fare to Battle Creek and handed back the change. The conductor never made a mistake. The center of their activity, the center of religious, social, and intellectual activity among these people was the meeting house of the Colored Baptists at the corner of Green and Pitty Streets, where the residence of Mrs. O.W. Bailey now stands. The church was situated on the rear of this lot. Here was the forum where the intellectual giants among the colored people settled by debate all of the problems and questions of the day. Here were held every winter the meetings of the African Debating Society, which were attended by our leading citizens who acted as judges and who greatly enjoyed the rude but original speeches of the debaters. The orations of Damathises and Webster were eclipsed in eloquence by these plantation orators. Among the questions discussed were, Who is the greatest man, Washington or Columbus? Which is the safest lifeguard in the wilderness, the dog or the gun? If a man planted watermelon seed and the vine runs over in his neighbor's yard, on which grows melons, who owns the melons? Woman sick on an island, the spy man spied her, the sailor rescued her, the doctor cured her, who deserves the most credit? And finally, which is the mother of the chickens, the hen that laid the eggs or the hen that hatched them? So those were some of the debating topics of the day. Winter Revival Meetings. Another great winter event was the Revival Meetings. When the zealous minister, in that exciting and impressive manner characteristic of the colored exhorter, appealed in vivid language to the sinners to repent, many would come forward to the anxious seat and plead for mercy and deliverance from sins. They were good singers. Their songs abounded in references to glory, River Jordan, the prodigal son, the heavenly land, etc. The climax of the excitement came when the revival closed and the day for baptism came. This took place in the Battle Creek, where the ice was yet in the stream. The congregation, preceded by the minister and converts, formed a procession at the little church and marched to the Battle Creek in the vicinity of the old red flouring mill near the site of present Ellis Publishing Company building and were then immersed. Wow, they were baptizing people in the icy waters of the Battle Creek River in wintertime. Ouch. 
As the procession marched down the street and congregation united in singing in stenorian tones and with the fervor particular to the colored people, a song repeated many times which ended in this chorus, Children, if your hearts are warm, ice and snow can do no harm. This was an application of the present-day new thought ideas. Their hearts were warm. The thought of being saved banished all fear of the ice, and they waded into the cold water without hesitation, shouting with joy, and were immersed by the colored clergymen. So that's the story of the early baptisms. The Second Baptist Society, their first congregation. The first organization of any kind formed among the colored people was the Second Baptist Society. They held meetings at the homes of the members for several years, but it was not until 1849 that the society was officially organized. The formal ceremony took place at the First Baptist Church, Reverends Parmas and Harris Pastors. I may have that first name wrong because the printing on the newspaper I'm reading from is not very clear. And these were pastors of the white Baptist churches that were officiating. The pastor of the new church society was Reverend J.W. Lackey. The first deacons were Emmeline Skipworth, William Davis, and wife, Mrs. Kennison Artisan and Henrietta Brown, Rebecca Strother, and Granville Blanks. Few of the colored people today can recall Reverend Lackey, the first pastor. The two best-known pioneer pastors were Reverend Henry Garnes and Reverend Thomas Jefferson Shores. In 1859, the society bought the old church building of the first M.E. Society, standing at the corner of East Main and South Division Street, and moved it to Marshall Street on the present site of the new church edifice. The African M.E. Church was not a pioneer society as it was not organized until after the war. That's an interesting note that they referred to the Pioneer Society as the settlement years prior to the Civil War. And after that, it was post-Civil War era. The Great Annual Gala Day. The Great Annual Gala Day for the colored people was the celebration of the 1st of August. This was nearly always held in Beaches Grove on Marshall Street on the present site of the Toasted Cornflakes Factory. Right here was a beautiful grove of second-growth oaks named after Dr. Beach, a pioneer physician. In this grove were held the 4th of July celebrations and Sunday school. Subsequently, the grove was known as Rice's Grove and still later as Upton's Grove, the name changing with each change in ownership of the land. On Emancipation Day, the Hannibal Society was conspicuous in the parade with glorious colored regalias and red sashes. In later years, the celebrations were held at St. Mary's Lake and Lake Gogwak, and once upon the old fairgrounds, when the speaker was the famous Frederick Douglass, who drew a great crowd to the city. The first record of an Emancipation Day celebration is in a copy of the Weekly Journal in July 1853. The notice states that the citizens of color of Battle Creek met July 28, 1853, and resolved to have an Emancipation Day celebration, a procession from the schoolhouse to the grove, and a free dinner. The officers were President William Casey, Vice President John Gaines, S. 
Johnson and Jeremiah Weaver, Marshal of the Day, B. Allen, Assistant Marshal, Nate Cena, and Committee on Arrangements, G. Lovely, Thomas Henderson, H. Lewis, G. Simpson, and Nathan Vestal. Committee on Provisions, F. Struthers, John Tillman, L. Flood, G. Hill, J. Simpson. The Battle Creek Band was engaged for the occasion. This is supposed to have been the first celebration observed in this city. And that was on July 28, 1853. That goes way back in time. The dancing and fiddling among the young people dancing contributed greatly to the social life of the old colony. The fiddler was Henry Lewis, who was still remembered with pleasure by the older colored citizens. The dances were held in private houses. The first colored Masonic Lodge. The third organization to be perfected among the colored people was the Masonic Lodge, which was not until 1864. William Thatcher, a colored man who came to this city, was already a member. In order to secure the seven required charter members, the following went to Ypsilanti and took the degrees in the lodge of the city. Samuel Struther, H.F. Snodgrask, William Woodland, Thomas Henderson, Jacob Corbin, and John J. Evans. The lodge was instituted in the second story of the Labar building on the present site of the Phoenix Block, corner South Jefferson Avenue and West State Street. Ada Chapter Eastern Star was instituted January 23, 1886. In later years, a lodge of colored oddfellows was instituted, also a lodge of the household of Ruth. Twice in the history of Battle Creek, the colored peoples organized successfully and maintained good brass bands. The first one was under the leadership of John J. Evans. The second one was organized many years afterwards. Levi Fisher was the leader. During the War of the Rebellion, John J. Evans organized a company of colored men and made application to Governor Blair for enlistment, but was refused. The company was drilled nights by Theodore Barr, a white man, and an eccentric inventor on Bartlett's Commons. Subsequently, William Henry Tucker and Peter Stevens enlisted in the 54th Massachusetts, and Tom Weaver, A.D. Cook, James L. Brown, John Jackson, Nathan Cena, John Harris, Amos Swanigan, and Henry Clark in the 102nd United States Infantry. So that is quite an interesting historical connection to Battle Creek, the 54th Massachusetts was portrayed in the movie Glory, if anybody out there has watched that movie. And then the 102nd Michigan was the other major colored regiment. And it was actually the 102nd U.S. troops. They were merged, I think, with Ohio. I had a, a historian on earlier last year that talked about the history of that. Let's continue with the article. They had a pugilist, too. There were several among the colored people who were hard fighters. The old-fashioned fistfights that took place were in total disregard of the Marquis of Queensbury rules. They were rough and tumble. The most noted pugilist was Mace Charles, a barber who was a very powerful man and who fought battles all over the section of the state. One night, in a fight in the old Tamarack house at Assyria Center, he had his eye knocked out with a hammer. The colored people were not without their tragedies. 
It was before the war that George Lovely murdered his wife. The family lived at the bank and mill race near the pond. Lovely stabbed his wife to death through jealousy. It was in later years that the bodies of Spencer King and Isaac Harrison were found in the Kalamazoo River. It is supposed that King was thrown into the river from South Jefferson Avenue Bridge by a notorious thug, Bloody Bill Bradley, and that Harrison was made that way because he knew something about the George Arnold murder, and that dead men tell no tales. On George Arnold murder, that was the infamous son of Pump Arnold, and many people out there have uh, are familiar with that story. Uh, Blaine Pardo wrote a book on Pump Arnold that can be found at the Battle Creek Library. If you're interested, also you can purchase it online from Amazon. In the latter years, the young colored people have interested themselves in education, and three have graduated from our high school, Margaret Snodgrass, Minnie Gurley, and William Woodland. The latter studied medicine and is now located in Kentucky, where he has a large practice. Four ministers have been produced. Four Battle Creek colored men have been ordained to the ministry. Reverend Samuel Struther, Reverend Joseph Green, Reverend Joseph C. Cross, and Reverend William H. Gurley. The two former are dead. Remember, this is 1908, so everybody's dead in this article. But at the time of this article, two of them were still alive. Uh, Reverend Cross is in charge of a church at Mount Sterling, Kentucky, and Reverend Gurling still lives in the city. The first colored man to settle in Battle Creek was Lou Jackson. He came here in either 1836 or 1837 as coachman for Isaac Merritt. A letter received from Mrs. Clara Gilman of Chicago, daughter of Isaac Merritt, states that Jackson came from New York in 1836 as a coachman for her father. He drove through with the horses and carriage. My father had been in Battle Creek the year before and built a house for his family, which was the second framed house in the village. The other homes were cabins, and later he sold the house for a tavern, and it was next to the house where the Clifton House now stands. Father and mother spent the remainder of their lives in this home. Jackson went to work in the tavern. So that's an interesting story. He was not a slave. He was employed as a carriage driver, and the family of the Merritts were Quakers, so they were adamantly opposed to slavery. So anybody that was a black person working for them was getting paid, and he was the uh, driver. So that was Lou Jackson. An old pioneer who left a written record says that in 1837, Isaac Merritt moved to the village Quite a sensation was created in the little hamlet in the woods when his elegant turnout made its appearance on the streets leading to his residence. It was a great display for those bygone days. There was a span of beautiful white horses and a carriage pronounced splendid for that time with a colored coachman. The old settlers will recognize the coachman as the well-known Lewis Jackson whose lively humor, jokes, and witty sayings were yet well-remembered with the man's most excellent traits of character. And that was how they described Lewis Jackson. The first colored woman. The first colored woman to come to Battle Creek was a girl brought here from New York by the family of Stevens Valentine, a Gogwak Prairie farmer. 
She was known as Lovisa Ann, but none of the living residents can remember her surname. She had been a slave in New York. Lovisa Ann became the wife of Lou Jackson and lived with him until his death in 1861 at the age of 49 years. He was buried in the Quaker Cemetery. Subsequently, Mrs. Jackson became the second wife of Deacon Struthers and died in this city. Now, the Quaker Cemetery had a couple of different moves. There was one up on North Avenue, then it was moved to what is now known as Quaker Park, and then later the bodies there were disinterred and moved to Oak Hill Cemetery. So I'm not sure which Quaker Cemetery he was buried at. It may have been the original one on North Avenue at that time. But interesting um, connection to the Quaker family there. The versatile Lou Jackson. Lou Jackson was the character of the village, and many are the stories told of him. He could preach or fight, pray or dance. At one time, he was the janitor of the old Wildcat Bank. When persons began to call on the bank to query the cashier as to the value of the Wildcat Bank notes, the latter always fled out the back door and left Jackson with his quick wit to get rid of the inquisitive and suspicious note holder, which he successfully accomplished in pretending to be a simple-minded and not able to comprehend what the man wanted. He carried the act to perfection. Jackson was the mascot of the volunteer fire department in the days of hand engines. One time in Justice Angel's court, a colored man was arraigned, charged with some minor crime. He had not understood his rights in the case, and the justice asked Jackson to take the fellow out and give him some advice. Jackson returned to the courtroom after a time and seated himself. The justice asked Jackson where the prisoner was. Well, squire, responded Jackson, I think that by this time he is in Merritt's wood. How is that? said the surprised justice. Well, your honor, you told me to give him some advice, and the best advice I could give him was to make to the woods. So he did it. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting little story. Following Jackson came some colored persons, but to record the exact time and order of their arrival is impossible. Among the first was Deacon Samuel Struthers, Nathan Cena, Mary Evans, the family of seven children, including her well-known citizens, John Evans, and he gives a whole list of people here. One of the most prominent of the colored people was Deacon Samuel Struther. He was very active in the church work and in all movements for improving the colored people. He was a charter member of the Second Baptist Church, the originator of the Hannibal Society, and the organizer of the Colored Masonic Lodge. Struther originated a scheme for organizing a society among the colored people that would become national in extent. It was an ambitious project. He had read about the Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general, and made the chieftain his hero in his life, the foundation of the Hannibal Society, which was very secret and mysterious in its workings. The only purpose that it served was to make a gorgeous display on Emancipation Days. Branches were organized at Marshall and Niles, and that ended the scheme of the deacon for a great... National Organization for Africans. Struther had heard that there was such a thing as a colored Masonic Lodge and called the colored men of the city together for organization. He did this without corresponding 
with those who knew of the workings and purposes of the order. He had not the slightest idea of what a lodge was. The night of the meeting, he ordered all of the men to stand up in the aisles of the church and then marched them back and forth until they were nearly exhausted. He imagined that a Masonic lodge had something to do with the military drilling. Subsequently, on its part, did result in the institution of the Struthered Lodge Number no. 3, which was named in his honor. Sojourner Truth, most prominent of all, the most famous colored resident of the city, was the quaint and original Sojourner Truth, a native African who had been a slave in New York. She came to Battle Creek in 1856 and localed in Harmonia. Subsequently, she bought a house and lot on College Street, now the site of the present home of the ex-county clerk, Edward Austin, where she died on Thanksgiving Day, November 26, 1883. Sojourner was made the subject of a sketch in the Atlantic Monthly for April 1863, entitled Sojourner Truth, The Libyan Sybil written by Harriet Beecher Stove, which made her famous story. The celebrated sculpture made her the model of a marble statue on his studio in Rome named the Sybil. Sojourner had been born and brought up in the farm of Hattiesburg, Ulster, New York. Sojourner was sold to John Neely for $100. The latter sold her to a fisherman by the name of Shrivener. And the year 1810, Shrivener sold his slaves to John Dumont. These people were all Dutch, and it was many years before Sojourner learned to speak the English language. She had two husbands and five children. She worked with the men in the fields and did a man's work every day, hoeing and planting corn, pulling flax, and picking up stones. Sojourner ran away from Dumont and found her way to Northampton, Massachusetts, where she was given work by sympathizers. Slavery was abolished in New York in 1823 when Sojourner was made free. When the anti-slavery movement began, she entered the lecture field. Although she could not read or write, she was gifted by nature with the bo- as a born orator and held her audiences spellbound. Her ways were so original, unique, and combined with African quaintness that she was in constant demand from every section of the northern states as a speaker at abolitionist meetings. We recently held an event at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, and Donna Rickman presented that, and it was about a two-hour event featuring the life of Sojourner Truth, and she was quite an amazing woman. And at some point, I will have Donna on this show again. She recently was here uh, last weekend talking about uh, the women's history program we have coming up. But I'll probably have her on in a special episode at some point to talk specifically about Sojourner Truth. So let's continue on with this article. One of the marked characters was William Casey. He was a man of wonderful strength. He had the contract for sawing all the wood for the Michigan Central Company at this station. The locomotives in those days all burned wood. The company bought four-foot wood of the farmers, which was sawed once in two. Casey did this big job for years with a handsaw and sawbuck, working unceasingly from morning until night. His endurance was marvelous. When the slave owners from Kentucky made their famous raid on the Quaker settlement near Cassopolis and surprised the fugitives, Casey was among the latter. 
When his younger master attempted to capture him, Casey knocked him down with a stool and fractured his skull. The man died upon reaching his home in Kentucky. In after years, Casey was made the victim of a gold brick game. By a plausible story, two strangers induced him to meet them on the South Division Street one night, and he exchanged $2,000 with them in paper money for gold. When he arrived home and examined his package, it contained a brick. The loss of $2,000 of this hard-earned savings broke his heart, and he went to Canada, where he died. The Revengeful Jesse Scott One quaint and mysterious character was Jesse Scott. He came to this country from Africa and had never been a slave. He had been badly crippled, both legs being drawn out of shape, and his person presenting a very ugly appearance. He was a voodoo doctor versed in sorcery and incantations. He brought with him from Africa several charms, one of which was worn around his neck, from which was suspended some strange object, which he continually consulted with conjuring. All of the colored people were afraid of him. He came here to work for Henry Willis. He was a man of violent passions and very revengeful. One day he got mad at Willis and left his employ. That night the trees in Willis's nursery were all girdled. Girdled means that somebody took a knife and cut the bark all the way around it, which will ultimately cause the tree to die. A year afterwards, a letter was received here from Scott, who gleefully acknowledged that he'd girdled Willis's trees. Thomas Henderson was the well digger of the community, and for all the country around, was in the days before driven wells. Henderson was a very strong man and a hard worker. He was killed by the caving in of a well that he had been digging. His daughter Mary was murdered by her husband, George Lovely in the city, which he already mentioned earlier in the same article. One of John Brown's assistants for about two years during 1866 and 1867, Battle Creek was the residence of one of John Brown's men, Osborne Pinney Anderson. Anderson was a mulatto and a very intelligent man. He served with Brown at Osawatomie, Kansas, and after the trouble in that state assisted in organizing the raid on Harper's Ferry. Anderson accompanied the party of 22 men who rendezvoused at the Kentucky House five miles from Harper's Ferry. In the party were five colored men, Anderson being one of the number. He accompanied Brown on the night raid upon the armory when the guns were seized and then sent back by Brown on some guard duty. This is what saved his life, as all of the men who remained there were either shot down or captured and afterwards hanged. Anderson and two other men worked their way back up to the north. For ten days they lived on green corn and kept secreted in the woods. Anderson was master of two trades, that of bricklayer and stonemason, and hand pressman. He had learned the latter trade in a printing office in Canada and was a good workman. During his two years' residence here, he worked at the stonemason's trade and was frequently called to the journal office to work off the weekly edition on an old Washington hand press. The writer of this article was then the apprentice and did the rolling or inking on the forms while Anderson printed the edition. So Charles Barnes actually worked with this man in the printing press 
when they were hand printing the papers. That's quite an amazing connection. It was during these times that Anderson told the writer of his connection with the famous John Brown raid. Anderson was a great reader and spent all of his time, when not at work, in reading. He brooded over the condition of the colored people and would sit in deep meditation for hours. One Emancipation Day, he gave the oration, which was a good one. He died at the poorhouse in Washington, D.C. The Prophet and His Deed. A strange personage was a colored man who lived here for several years, known as the Prophet. He was an eccentric fellow who claimed to be divinely inspired to receive messages from God. He had been sent to earth as the forerunner of the destroying angel. He went about wearing a white turban on his head with a piece of red chalk on his, in his hand. Those houses and their occupants who were to escape destruction, he marked with his red chalk. From here, the prophet went to Dexter, where he lived in a wigwam in the woods. One day, a party of young fellows were out hunting, stopped at his place, and began to tease him. He seized an axe, and he was about to brain one of the young fellows. James O'Grady stepped in to interfere and received the blow, killing him instantly. O'Grady was the brother of Stanley O'Grady, who now lives in the city. The prophet was tried for murder and was declared insane and sent to the Pontiac Asylum. John J. Evans, the living leader. One man who has been prominently identified with the interests of the colored people of Battle Creek is John J. Evans. He came to this place from Georgia with his mother, a widow with seven children, and has ever since resided here engaged in barbering. He has been a very prominent in the colored Masonic circles. He was for 11 years Grandmaster of the Grand Lodge of Michigan, and at the present time is Grand Eminent Commander of the Colored Knights Templar. He is a good musician and for many years was a member of the old-time Humphreys and Evans Orchestra, which played for dances in this vicinity. William Henderson, a son of Thomas Henderson, became a musician of considerable note and played in an orchestra in Chicago for a number of years. Subsequently, he traveled on the road with a colored minstrel troupe of his own. One colored young man who made a criminal record became an author and wrote a book entitled Buried Behind Prison Walls for a Quarter of a Century or Life in Jackson Prison. The author was John S. Gaines, familiarly known as Stamper Gaines. The book was well written and had a large sale. And the first directory, the first directory of the Battle Creek ever printed was in 1869. The record of 39 years ago contains the names of the following colored men. And there was, there's probably about uh, 50 to 70 names on this list. And I'm not going to read you, but that's the end of the article written by Charles Barnes, which covers a lot of the history of the early black pioneers and some of the interesting stories of those folks and who they were. And it's kind of fascinating to look back at the history of that time period in the early pre-Civil War years of the settlers from the black community in Battle Creek, as well as the post-Civil War years and some of their successes and achievements, as well as their uh, struggles and the different levels of prosperity that people had. There was a few criminals in there, a few people that went to jail, very much like today's society with any culture of people. So just a fascinating look back at the history of the early black pioneer settlement in Battle Creek, and it gives you some amazing insight into that history. So that being 
said, I thought I would share that with you today. A fascinating story. And I really enjoy reading the work of Charles Barnes. And I hope to bring even more stories of his work to this podcast as I find them. Because he really had in his heart to try to preserve some of the early history of Battle Creek for years to come. And uh, he is uh, going to be featured on our historic portrait wall in the History Education Center at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And he's on the same wall as Sojourner Truth, by that matter, as well as other historians from the Battle Creek community. So quite a a detailed and fascinating article with a lot of facts and interesting information that you don't always hear about from that early period here in Battle Creek's history. So that's going to conclude today's episode. If you enjoyed today's story, please take some time to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on or maybe a few kind words on what you thought about the episode and if you'd like to reach out to me you can find me at michaeldelaware.com i am always happy to hear from my listeners and until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of southwest michigan's past thank you for listening